Huh? Now, is, do you need this? Yeah, yeah, okay. So I just wanted to bless Sandra and pray over her. Um, I noticed today that our prayer room was totally packed. And that never happens for me. So there's something about you that just draws prayer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, to be honest, I thought, that, I thought about that. And I felt that the Lord says that you are a wounded healer. I was praying over you today. And what's happening with your foot? I know you said you have regional, chronic regional pain syndrome, and it's from a break, yeah. trauma from a break. So the, the boot is off, as you may have noticed. Um, so I wore that boot for two months for no purpose, because by the time I put the boot on, it was pretty nearly healed. And so of the breaks, it had multiple breaks, and then um, immobilizing of something causes other problems. So um, I've been diagnosed and developed, but I'm kind of keeping the diagnosis at a distance because I don't totally want to take it on. Um, something called chronic regional pain syndrome. So the increasing pain and swelling and things that I'd had was not the break. It was um, this sort of, um, it's a, like a neurological inflammatory disorder that has lots of treatments, but no healing, blah, blah, you know, no actual cure. And, um, but but um, I've been praying, and other people have been praying, I'm sure. And um, did a little physio and did some walking on it. So it's actually, like, it was insanely painful when I saw the specialist. And a couple weeks on now, it's actually probably, like, 75% better. So, you know, that's pretty good. So, all that to say, um, never trust someone without a limp. Yeah. And we are... Uh, blessed to have you in our community, Sandra. You are a gift from the heart of God to us. And we're looking forward to what you have to share today. So let's just uh, uh, pray. And if you, if you feel inclined, you can stretch your hands towards her, which is, if you wonder what that is, it's just a, kind of a, a gesture of laying on of hands without having to get up and come here and lay hands on her, uh, but to bless her. So Lord, we thank you for Sandra for entrusting her to our community and I thank you personally for the blessing and encouragement she's been to me so many times. And Lord, in her brokenness and in her pain, she probably has no idea how much your grace and your life flows through her to us and to others. And so I just pray that she'll just be able to settle into that today as part of our family, that this is our living room, that we're just together as, as family, we're safe. And I, I ask that you would empower her to speak what you've given her, empower us, as always, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive. We ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Do you want to use this? Uh, sure. Yeah. Is that? Okay. Um, all right. Today we're um, talking on the Beatitudes. Um, I was supposed to talk actually next week, which is the Loving Your Enemies and I was like, oh, that's probably a bad idea because I don't think I'm loving any of my enemies, I can safely say. Um, but then I was like, oh, thank God it's the Beatitudes instead because that is just so much easier. I feel like I'm really living that one out. So, um, and I even had an anecdotal story for, uh, for, you know, your enemies, but I don't really have any anecdotal stories today um, uh, except that um, I'm going to, like, confess that I'm going to try to, like, be a little bit more my actual normal self up here. Um, <laughs> normally, I'm a fairly, I, this whole thing feels very nerve-wracking, and they say, you know, picture people naked, and I think it'd just be better if you all had your eyes closed. And if you didn't look at me, then I'd probably feel a lot more comfortable. So um, I'm going to be trying to be a little less boring and a little more my actual self, because that'll probably be more entertaining. Um, yeah, because... A couple, few weeks ago, when Gordy was preaching on the um, where Jesus, the Luke part where Jesus is in the synagogue talking about Isaiah 61, he had this like sweet like Richard Nixon moment where he's like standing here going, and la 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 la, and I was just like, oh, I gotta be more my normal self because <laughs> that's just so awesome. Okay, so um, I don't think I don't know if we have like the um, I didn't have a I don't have a slide for the reading for today of the Beatitudes, but. There it is. It appeared without me having to do anything. Um, okay, so here it is, Luke 6. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, 
and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Um, so there you go. That's what we're talking about today. Um, I, I normally talk way shorter, but this might be a touch longer than I normally talk, because I, I, when I first read that, I was like, oh dear me, I really have no idea what those words mean when I really think about it. Like, um, I mean, normally, I think, you know, you, you read most Bible things or most, especially gospel stuff, I think, I think, I know who Jesus is, I kind of get all the stuff he says, this all makes sense, I'm, I don't know, I've kind of got all Jesus has to say by now, don't I, at this point? Um, but then I was really, like, reading those words thinking, I have no idea, like, I just felt so struck with my own poverty of, like, ignorance, and um, kind of thought, you know, I'm maybe more on the like rich side where I've already kind of got all the understanding. What more do I need to know about this or whatever? Um, so then I did a lot of reading. And um, so I'm just going to tell you some of the people I was reading so that you know who's kind of informing this. Um, so I read um, some Tolstoy. I read some Bonhoeffer. I read some Merton, some C.S. Lewis, some Richard Rohr, um, Oswald Chambers, and then a whole pile of other people. And so those, lots of their ideas are here. This isn't just my pure brilliance up here right now. Um, <laughs> but I may not quote each person when they're, so I'm just letting you know. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I'm really hoping that God just speaks to us today because uh, when I really read these like more honestly, I actually felt like wildly convicted that, um, oh, what we don't have here is, did I read the woes? Oh, no, the woes aren't there. Oh, they are there. Oh, we missed the woes. So I kind of felt convicted that I was really on the mo the war, woe side. Like Matthew, as you know, has eight beatitudes, and they're all blessings. And I, I, when I hear the beatitudes in my mind, they come off as sort of like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But I think Jesus was standing on a hillside to a lot of people, going, and woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your reward. <laughs> like, that's kind of how he was saying them, and that's kind of how I started to hear them <laughs> this week. Um, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treat the false prophets. I kind of like the woes. It kind of tosses in a bit of drama, and <laughs> kind of goes with um, my point today. Um, and I think when we first read these, um, I think they don't necessarily make sense because we look at our experience and we think, ah, I'm looking at the poor and when I'm feeling poor, I'm not feeling blessed. And, um, and I think that whenever we kind of read scripture and our experience feels like it doesn't line up, then it's sort of an opportunity for us to just think about what does this mean and how can my mind get conformed to the truth and have Christ's mind, which of course is like more easier said than done, of course, but um, so yeah, Jesus in these, uh, this whole thing, of course, is talking about the kingdom of God. He's telling that the kingdom has come, that it's near. Um, he says later in Luke that it's not visible and that it can't be seen with our speculations. We can't kind of imagine and intellectualize what the kingdom of God is. Um, and so obviously that's what his whole life was for. His whole life was sort of making visible the kingdom of God. And um, these words are, I think, what I'm going to sort of suggest to you today is that they're kind of like a manifesto of reality. He's come to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and all the people, and they're, they've got a system of sort of an external morality. And I think Jesus is going to be saying, Let's, we're doing a massive paradigm shift here. We're not tweaking your pretty good system. Um, and you'd be really proud of the law, and you're really proud of being children of Abraham, but we're going to do... A repentance. We're going to turn around and it's going to be, I'm going to put you in touch with reality now. 
instead of just your external system of morality because that is not getting you, it's not getting anyone holy, it's not making anyone righteous. Um, so um, to kind of get to that point, I'm going to do some preamble. Um, this is sort of all the little alleys I went down prepping this sermon. So um, at the beginning of Luke, he's the, so let's look at why, why that idea might be possible, that this is sort of kind of that sense of manifest reality. So um, we're going to look at the little background. I think to get to the Beatitudes, we have to kind of look at what comes up to the Beatitudes because um, Luke actually gives us a ton of background. He gives us way more information. Um, there's like, you know, 15, 20 things that happen before the Beatitudes in Luke, and in Matthew, only a few of those things happen, and John and Mark kind of just leap into sort of different things. So um, Luke gives us a lot of um, origin story. And at the beginning, he says um, that he is, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So um, I think Luke has really got a mission here, and he's really got a way he's going to write it. Um, Luke is um, wrote in Greek, and he wrote, he was an educated, he was a doctor, physician, right? He was a co-worker with Paul. He was intellectual, he was educated, and his gospel is noted for how much more eloquently it's written. Um, and so he would have had um, a Greek um, education and understanding. He's probably a Gentile. And um, the idea that he's a doctor is sort of interesting because back then, of course, doctor, we think medical specialties. Back then, a doctor, um, there were lots of philosophers that were sort of doctors. People, a doctor at that point was had knowledge about body things too, but they were actually much more in, also had um, natural philosophy and, and philosophy about sort of what was more like the healthy and the good life. That was kind of what they were interested in at that time. And um, the good life was um, sort of the highest goal, and, and it was more, it wasn't like a life of luxurious freedoms and, and, you know, having loads of money. The good life meant something internal. It meant um, living a life in balance with good and beauty and truth and seeking those things and kind of aligning your life with these ideals. Um, and so I think Luke has definitely got that um, he has that influence, and um, and he's writing, he says, a history. He wants to us to really get who Jesus is. He wants something clear, and he wants something accurate, and he really wants us to know who is speaking the words that he's going to write. And um, his gospel is known as kind of a narrative theology. He writes... Um, he writes his gospel as sort of a story of... Um, Jesus walking from Galilee to Jerusalem, where the sort of he's going to have the um, you know the the, cl the climax of the story, and sort of along the way he's healing and preaching and casting out demons and doing what he does. Um, so it's it's history that Luke's writing, but he's also writing literature. He's also writing for a purpose. Um, he is an evangelist. He really wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know the good news. Um, and so to hear the Beatitudes, to hear them fresh, to hear them how Jesus was meant to saying them to us, I think we need to kind of go back a little bit. Um, and what's sort of interesting about Luke is that, which I didn't know, was that nearly almost half of Luke is actually material that's unique to Luke. It's not in the other Gospels. So that's kind of interesting. So that really, he's really thinking about what he's trying to convey. And um, so he gives us, like I said, this backstory, sort of this origin story of Jesus. He gives, we got a lot of information before the Beatitudes. Um, and kind of what's the point of an origin story? It's like, say, in a comic book, right? We, we, we get an origin story on characters so that we understand their heart, we understand their motivation, we understand where they come from, so that when we hear their words and we see what they're doing, it's like, oh, yeah, that totally matches up, right? So, like, you know, Batman is really grumpy and moody and he does good things, but we understand it because his parents got shot in the street and he saw it, and it's like, okay, well, we'll forgive him, you know, some crazy behavior of dressing up in the nighttime and, you know, or whatever, so I think that's sort of what 
Luke's kind of doing right here. He gives us a lot of origin story um, before he, whereas Matthew doesn't really give much origin story. So what kind of origin story do we get of Luke? Um, this is nice that it kind of follows after Christmas because we've heard quite a bit of it. Um, we get um, Elizabeth and Zacharias. We've got this really old, righteous couple who are disgraced in the eyes of their community. They haven't had a baby. And then they get miracle baby, you know, announced by angels. You know, tongue, tongues are tied. There's, it's just, that's quite a miraculous thing. And John's not sort of an ordinary guy. John is, Jesus calls him the greatest person who ever lived. So the miracle baby is going to be the greatest person who ever lived, according to Jesus. Um, and he gets announced by an angel. And of course, by the time we get to like Jesus coming, there's been like years of sort of dry, there hasn't been prophets, there hasn't been miracles, there's just this blank, right? Um, and then there's another angel coming to a lowly person. So Luke really has loves loves the poor. He has lots of examples of the poor and the rich and the poor and the rich in his gospel. And so he cut, Mary describes herself as the lowly servant girl. Um, so we have two miracle births, angels being involved in those miracle births. And then we get, um, there's been, there hasn't been prophets. Mary and Zechariah are given good, long, prophetic praise songs. And they, both of them basically sum up um, the themes of Luke. Um, they praise God. They praise that a savior has come. The whole idea of saving is massive in Luke. Salvation has come. And he's come to the exalt the humble, set people free. And rich simultaneously are not going to. They're going to be proud. are going to be knocked down. Um, John is born. Then we have this like epic journey of Mary and Joseph getting to um, then like this Big journey leading to like a really humble birth in a barn um, to someone totally insignificant. And then Jesus, uh, Matthew includes the Magi, but Luke doesn't include the Magi. I think he kind of has a little bit more of a tint to the poor. He, his, his accompanying people, of course, are the shepherds. So we got a really humble woman. We got a really humble birth. Um, and then we've got a whole bunch of Jesus invites, the angels God invites, humble people to attend his birth, and more angels, more praising. The angels say that great joy, there's a savior, He's and this God is pleased with you. Um, and then after that, we also have Jesus getting presented at the temple. Um, and so Mary and Joseph, it, Jesus is raised with um, Mary and Joseph. So Jesus, we know that Jesus is raised in an environment where the parents really value the law, they value God, they listen to God, um, and same that's said too about Elizabeth and Zachariah, so the, the prophet that precedes Jesus is also raised in a home where they're, they, they love God, and um, so Jesus is at the temple, and he, Luke talks, gives us a story of Anna and Simeon, and they have more prophecies about the theme of salvation um, and God's rescue. And then we have the next story is Jesus at the temple at 12. And he's at 12 years old being listened to with interest by, um, you know, other religious leaders, adults. And he's already recognized to be, so we're, we're getting the sense that this is not, you know, if the angels and the prophecies and the miracle births aren't giving you the idea, it's really starting to look like Jesus is not an ordinary guy. Like, this is somebody we really want to hear. This is somebody we really want to listen to. And then it says, he says twice about Jesus growing up healthy, strong, in favor of God and men. And then he obeyed his parents. I was like, oh, I wish I could have a kid like that. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so he's a really good kid. Uh, um, and, then, um, and then we have John, the, you know, this miracle baby preaching in the desert. And he's like an extreme figure. God is, and he's getting, someone is clearing the way for him. And um, John's message, as you know, is repent. Kingdom of God is here. And I'm not the Messiah. So people are wondering, but he's not it. So he's made it clear that he's not that. And then Jesus comes and is baptized. Um, the audible voice of God is heard. I don't, I don't know when the last time people have heard the audible voice of God in a group together. It's probably been some time. Um, and then the Holy Spirit comes and descends. So for a moment, 
the Trinity is visible all together right there in the baptism. So people are seeing the Trinity. Like they've been like, where is the Messiah? Here's the Trinity right here for you. Um, and then we, Luke offers us also the ancestry of Jesus. So Jesus is sort of an obviously an extraordinary person. He's somebody to be listened to. But he also, Luke says, but he's also, he's also a man. Here he's come and he gives us this whole ancestry. And of course he traces it, um, he traces it back. So whereas Matthew traces it the other way, Luke traces it so that we get from Jesus all the way through Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, blah, blah. And we get right back to Adam to God. So Jesus is traced right. He's like, he, this is a guy who's coming straight from God. He is one of us. He's part of our story. He's, um, yeah, he's fitting into our human story. From the baptism, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the temptation in the desert, um, and he overcomes, of course, and comes out in the power of the Spirit, it says. Then it says that he starts to teach in synagogues, so Jesus is out. He's active. He's, like, on it after the temptation and then there's the preaching in the synagogue that Gordy talked about um last week which is um so and I'm going to read this because I think this is uh, this is the kind of so we've got all this origin story of the of Jesus he's an exceptional guy then he's He's one of us. He belongs in the story. He's part of, and then he comes out and Jesus says, tells straight away, this is what he's doing. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time the Lord's favor has come. Jubilee. So um, I think the Beatitudes are directly related to this mission. Um, um, so, uh, that, yeah, um, so that's going to be my point that today is that the Beatitudes are like a manifesto of this mission that Jesus has said. So a manifesto of reality, not morality, um, um, which is meant to be sort of a paradigm shift on the, their conception of the law. Um, so I think the main points from that Isaiah passage that are sort of really part of what he's going to say in the Beatitudes is, um, Key points are that Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed. He's not coming by himself. He didn't take the authority. He didn't decide that I'm going to be the Messiah. He was like called. Paul says this in the New Testament that he was that he he answered. Um, that he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's anointed to preach the good news or preach glad tidings. Um, and I think preach is sort of a hard word because we hear preachy, but. Um, another other translations say bring so he's here to bring glad tidings not just like good things but he's bringing things that are going to make us joyful bring us make our hearts glad um, and he's come for one group of people he's come to the poor so that totally fits with our beatitudes and the poor sort of includes of course the blind the lame the humiliated, the oppressed, um, the scum, as the Pharisees call them in, in the New Living Translation. Um, and so uh, I'm going to basically, I think Luke's Beatitudes, the hungering and, and weeping are kind of versions of poverty. Um, and I, so I'm going to kind of focus on that part. I think the, the poor is like, that's a really hard, I think, thing for us to like get at. Um, I think our, to, to understand and to identify with. I think the difficulty with poverty, of course, is that um, it, it's kind of, I think it's, it, we have some sense of revulsion towards it. I think we, we fear it. We think, oh my gosh, I don't want that to be me. Um, and we go to great lengths not to be poor. We don't like the sense of poverty. It feels weak. It feels vulnerable. It feels out of control. It makes you feel powerless. You can be taken advantage of. Um, and, um, and I think we also view poverty as really not free. I think we have in our mind that rich people have got freedom to do the things they want. And poverty is really the opposite of freedom in our minds, I think. Um, I think we judge the poor. You know, when we see someone who's rich, they're like, well, there's somebody who's done something right and someone who's done something poor. I don't think we think it out loud, but we kind of implicitly think, well, they must have made some poor choices or, you know. Um, 
so in the sense, it's kind of like failure and, and being rich is a success. And, um, and so poverty clearly feels like bad. No one wants to feel poor. And I think we also feel like it doesn't feel like us. That it, that's not, you know, my real self would be, you know, be able to do this or choose these things or have, you know, um, that my real self isn't sort of a poor kind of person. Um, yeah. And then the final point of the Isaiah passage is that the year of the Lord's favor has come. It's jubilee. This is the good news. It's freedom. Freedom is, I think, the point of the kingdom. Um, I think it is, freedom is synonymous with the kingdom um, in the sense that they feel the same. The kingdom, I think Jesus wants us to, he can't say there's the kingdom. He wants us to get a sense of what it feels like. And his whole life is to give us a sense of what it feels like. And it feels like wild freedom. Um, and I was thinking if the kingdom is, is like an ocean, then the freedom is the water and we're the fish. And we don't live outside of freedom. All the parts of us that are sort of outside of the water are dying. We are meant to live in freedom and for freedom's sake. I think it's really important that God doesn't, especially in our little achieving kind of world now, he sets us free not so you can go and do the things he really wants you to be doing. He sets you free so that you can enjoy who you are and enjoy being free with him. I think that's why he sets us free. It seems too good, but like Gordy said, if it seems too good, then that's... <laughs> if it doesn't seem good, then it's not the gospel, right? But if it seems too good. And, um, and so I think that's why Jesus, everywhere he goes... He just brings freedom. He's casting demons out. He's setting, you know, he's healing. He's opening people's eyes. Freedom just comes with him because that's what the kingdom is. Um, and so, um, and freedom is like the exact opposite of kind of what we talked about last year, the sort of slave mind of Egypt, of captivity to sin, of being driven to prove ourselves. And, um, um, but... As all, and I think we really hunger for freedom, but I also um, agree, um, um, Sartre wrote that like, with freedom, we also fear it a bit. We fear just how free we actually are. Um, and I think that's true. I think that there's, we are way freer than we realize, but we're kind of scared of it. And so we kind of build our own little cages to kind of make it more of a manageable, our lives feel a little more manageable. Um, so... Yeah, and so I think the Beatitudes are expressed in a way to give us a sense of that freedom, to give us a sense of the kingdom. Um, yeah. Um, and then, so then after, so this is a little more of the origin kind of coming to the Beatitudes. Um, I love that in, when he says, so Jesus like reads this great passage from Isaiah, and then he sits down. I love that it says that he sits down. It's like, here it is. And he kind of sits down. He's like, and fulfilled. Here it is. You're living right here, right now. You are in the room of fulfillment. <laughs> you have seen the fulfillment. I love how casual that just kind of seems that he thinks that he sit down. And it's just like, so yeah, that's me. Scripture's talking about me. I'm the fulfillment. And they're like, aren't you Joseph's son? Like, pfft. and I kind of, kind of relate I'm like aren't Jesus I don't know I've sort of heard all the things you said I'm trying to love people I don't know you know um <laughs> like um you know what what have you got what have what do you got to say and um and uh I love that you know he's come for the people of Israel right he like preaches mostly to um the people of Israel but he sits down and he says Okay, scripture's fulfilled today, here it is. And then he also, then he says, then he quotes two stories of prophets, and he talks about Elijah and Elisha reaching, he's like, Elijah and Elijah were sent out, but to a couple of Gentiles, not you. Because you guys, you're not receiving it. So I love that it's just like, and, and then it says, and then they wanted to kill him. <laughs> right? They're like, you're the Messiah, and you're talking about Gentiles? Messiah is not here for the Gentiles. Messiah is here for us. We are the children of Abraham. We are the ones slaving under the law, like the big brother, right? The older brother, the prodigal son, right? Like, 
who are those people? Those people are scum. Those are outsiders. They, they, they I mean, yeah, they are not, they're not who Messiah's for, right? Um, and so right then and there, we've kind of got the sum total of what's going to happen for Jesus, right? He's just going to say, here I am, and they're going to hate it, <laughs> and they're rejecting it from the get-go. And, um, and obviously, I think, you know, Luke includes that because, you know, if he is a Gentile, then he's pretty into the idea that Jesus was here not just for the Jews. Um, so he summed up his mission. They're going to reject it. They're rejecting him. Um, but there he is. So, um, that's um, sort of our preamble to uh, the Beatitudes. Um, so, we've seen that Luke is, or Luke has kind of shown that Jesus is someone to heed. He's part of Israel's identity. He's part of their history. He's the fulfillment of their scriptures. But he is going to draw a big circle for salvation. It's not just going to include... Um, all the people doing the right things. And um, he's got a special mission for the poor and, um, and uh, that the kingdom of God is here, it's now, it's coming. Um, and so there's clearly no ordinary guy. He, and what I love about Jesus is just sort of the sense of himself all the time. He just has such a great sense of the, like he knows who he is and what he's here for. And, and, uh, and anything that doesn't fit it, he's like, Nope, that's not what I'm here for. He just he's so clear. It's just so fast when someone's like, well, what, do this? And he's like, no, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm here for. Um, all right, and then a few a couple of things, just in case, you know, he hasn't like, you know, they want to kill him, but in case that's just not quite enough, the couple of things that he does before the Beatitudes is um, he eats with some tax collectors and sinners. So he eats with people who are like unclean, not right, totally outside of God. He um, flouts the Sabbath by he heals on the Sabbath. He lets his grain, his disciples harvest grain on the Sabbath. Um, and uh, even though he's casting out demons and healing people and he's assembling disciples, the disciples are kind of all coming in. He's clearly like not living um, what they are expecting a Messiah to look like. He is not in any way anyone's typical idea of this is what a holy righteous guy looks like like here's a guy you know they accuse him of like you know being drunk at parties and um and he's like yeah sabbath i'm kind of the lord of the sabbath so you know um yeah we're not gonna make a lot of rules about that and uh and then on fasting too fasting's another great thing they loved fasting he's like yeah i'm here it's party time bridegroom's here it's, it's not time for fasting yet um, so he is not, his religion is not looking recognizable, um, let alone him as the Messiah. Um, so he is, he's part of it, but he's unique. Um, and so, and so then they're like, well, maybe he's a prophet, right? And they're like, yeah, okay, you could, you're kind of nut bar looking, so you could be a prophet, not Messiah necessarily. And even John asks that, right? He's like, so sends his disciples be like, is, is that the Messiah? And, uh. And I love that Jesus doesn't answer John with like, yep, Messiah. He says, go and tell John that the blind are seeing and the lame are walking and demons are being cast out. And so he describes the kingdom, which I think is so cool. He's like, freedom is being spread. Is that what, is that what Messiah does? So they should recognize it, right? They should recognize it. That's what he says to them. He says, you know how to recognize the weather and what it's going to do. Here's all the things that look like the kingdom. And John gets it, but they don't get him. So um, he is clearly introducing a massive paradigm shift. Um, and the closest paradigm shift I can think of, well, here's, here, I've got some nerd points. Does anyone know who Mikolaj Kopernik was? Oh, I knew you would know. Tell us. That's right. He was, um, his, his uh, uh, anglicized name is Nicholas Copernicus. He was the a Polish um, mathematician, astronomer, who um, in 1543 wrote on the revolution of the celestial spheres. And he was the one who suggested that um, the earth is not at the center 
of a perfect cosmos of perfect circles. That's what they'd up until up until that time Ptolemy um, had that. I, they'd un labored under this idea for like 1,400 years that the Earth was at the center, the planets and the sun went around in perfect circles, um, and he it actually his his uh, it seems like we know that now, so it doesn't um, like doesn't really get like seem that like paradigm shifting to us that the Earth is not at the center. But at that time, um, the, the cosmos was, the, the, they believed that the Bible said, no, that's how it goes. They, and that the cosmos was sort of a symbol for God and God's perfection and beauty. And that the earth was where, you know, he, the center of where God's action was and everything went around it in perfect, you know, perfection and that that immutability nothing ever changed that that was all reflecting God and so when they ch when he challenged that idea um it was it was kind of like a spiritual crisis too they were like what you're saying the whole universe is set up totally different and and that you know, maybe we're subject to to change and corruption. Maybe it's not perfect. Like it took, it wasn't until Galileo, like a hundred years later, that we figured out it wasn't perfect circles. That it was, you know, these ellipses and that there's, you know, things burning out in space, like comets, things. Um, and so, it challenged their whole spiritual conception. Of course, the church. He published it in the year of his death because he knew the church wasn't going to go for it. We know that Galileo was. I don't know, not that long ago, pardoned of his the sins of, you know, looking through a telescope and claiming something different than the, the church said. And so, um, but what was significant there was that the church lost some power. And so that was what was really key, right? Is that um, the church is for sort of dictating beliefs and here's what we believe and everyone kind of lines up with that. And there's power there and there's control and there's richness there's hands closed right and um so he challenged that and i think that's kind of sort of the level of the paradigm shift jesus is going for here he's like you think your your the law is the center you, you think the law is is and you being and fulfilling that perfectly is is and all your great religious hoop jumping. I mean, the thing about the Pharisees is that they were they were not bad people doing bad or or you know religious leaders whoever doing bad things. They were like us. They were like you know doing lectios and praying and fasting and doing good things. But the source, like the they missed the point. They missed the forest for the trees, right? And so Jesus is saying, the center isn't the law. It's going to be it's going to be a law, and an external morality system really always has its limits, right? It's, it's always going to have to be dictated from the outside. It's always going to, um, and so that's why in Jeremiah, God says that he's going to write it on us, right? None of us are going to need to be teaching each other. <laughs> Here I am, blah, blah. Think this. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but that the, that God is going to be, it's going to come from um, um, uh, inside. And the other thing about morality is, is that it's, um, there's this like, really great dialogue about the difficulties of morality from Socrates, but um, some of the difficulties is that um, it creates, it, it's a really binary. It creates good and bad, right and wrong, in and out. And it's or, right? You are either in or out. You are either black or white. Um, and I think Jesus, I like a time that you can kind of see that he's like, this is not how it's going to be, is when he says, um, you know, like, he says, you say that um, adultery is wrong. And he's like, I'm going to tell you that it's actually way harder than that. It's not just that you can, you know, avoid adultery and jump that hoop. But if you have thought about someone lustfully in your heart, then he's going to say that's, that's the wrong. It's about our heart and not the actions. So the perfect actions aren't what's making us righteous, but that that's, what they, that's what they were doing. That's what we do. That's what I do. I totally do that. I get totally caught up in thinking that, you know, these good things are what's bringing me, um, making me, like, get to heaven.
and I forget that like these good things, these things that I can do, are what I'm. They're to facilitate a relationship. They are not good in and of themselves. They're just things um, that can be tools, and um, and so. I think Jesus is like going, he's going to, I mean, Judah Judah sometimes talks to me. He's like, he goes, is this good or bad? Or is this good or bad? And I say, well, and he's like, oh, everything's really gray, isn't it? And I'm like, everything is really gray. (laughs) Everything is really gray. And I think that's what um, the Beatitudes are kind of like, right? They're telling us it's gray. And Jesus, you've got all these hoops and they're unbearable, but Jesus is like, whoa, this is going to, I'm drawing this way bigger. Everything about your heart and your attention, your mind, it all matters, not just what you're doing. It's all going to matter. Um, and the other problem with morality systems that are external to us, of course, is that we judge them. We're the ones who are going, no, bad, good, bad, good, good, bad, good. And I think if there's one thing that the Garden of Eden tells us is that we just aren't really meant for judging good and bad. We're not that good at it. Um, and that's why God says to us like lots of times in the Bible that he sees the heart. We see the externals, and he sees hearts. And that's where the law needs to be, not in sort of um, external systems. So, um, so the Beatitudes then, I think, can't be thought of as another morality system they're not like oh we're gonna switch um fasting for you know um being really poor or you know um you know doing uh, like they're not another to-do system they're not something that's not how jesus even the ones where i think matthew's talking about peacemaking or showing mercy um they aren't rules they can't be approached like rules. They can't be atro- approached like morality. I think they have to be approached like reality. He's saying, this is reality. This is what it is. You're, you may not feel like you're matched. That may not seem like that to you, but this is what reality is. And um, of course, it's always it's hard for us to see reality because we have sin. And we also stand in singular points in time. I think reality... I mean, it seems like a real truism, but reality includes time. Um, it includes being able to see through time. And um, and so that's just so why we need Jesus, right? We are just not going to be able to see it um, from our singular point and our singular perspectives. Um, so, yeah. So now I'm ready to talk about the Beatitudes. <laughs> um so I think Jesus is, uh, yeah, saying this kind of like a manifesto. Um, and, and I think manifestos are like, I love manifestos. They're like super sweet. I don't know if you've read a lot of manifestos, but I just read a bunch recently. They're like a super underutilized bit of literature, I think. They're like really, you know, they're, they're not trying to like, they're, when they're making Claims about reality, they're painting a picture with words, they're like calls to action, their rhetoric, their their vision. Um, and so what manifestos are like is they're like a painting, right? They're trying to say something more than what can be said in the words, right? And so that's what the Beatitudes are, I think, is Jesus trying to say something more than can be what is just said in the words precisely. Um, and so some examples of manifestos, of course, we the Communist Manifesto, um, but my, you know, Ten Commandments is thought of as a manifesto. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is kind of like a manifesto. Um, but my favorite manifestos, of course, are artist manifestos. And um, I'm going to read you one just so you can get a sense of the feeling that we're trying to catch a feeling with the Beatitudes. So I want to give you a f- sense of what the feeling, what you're trying to get here. So I'm going to read a manifesto that um, doesn't have a title, but it's from a guy, um, American pop artist called Klaus Oldenburg. I don't know if you, you've probably seen his stuff. He made, um, he was big because he was a pop artist, so he was really big in the 60s. And he made a lot of like these big floppy, um, floppy ice cream cones, floppy hamburgers, floppy, like really gigantic, huge things. Um, and then a lot of just everyday objects like saws and pins, but giant and huge and in weird places. And um, um, anyway, he was, um, and he came, 
um, kind of at the end of the modernists. So the pop artists were at the end of the modernists. And the modernists were the last of the lone male single genius toiling in his studio kind of thing. And so Klaus Altenberg is the pop artist, of course, were like in factories, lots of them making art, not with you know oil and canvas, they're making art out of garbage and cardboard. And so it's like they're really shifting and that's like the end of that time. All the artists up to that, a lot of them were these lone male geniuses in studios. So Klaus Odenberg wants a paradigm shift. So um, here's some of, his, some of his fairly sweet manifesto. I am for an art that is political, erotical, mystical, that does something other than sit on its ass in a museum. I am for an art that grows up not knowing it's an art at all, an art given the chance of having a starting point of zero. I am for an art that embroils itself with the everyday crap and still comes out on top. I am for an art that imitates the human, that is comic if necessary, or violent, or whatever is necessary. I am for all art that takes its form to the lines of life itself that twists and extends and accumulates and spits and drips and is heavy and coarse and blunt and sweet and stupid as life itself. I am for an artist who vanishes, turning up in a white cap, painting signs or hallways. I am for an art that comes out of a chimney like black hair and scatters in the sky. I am for an art that spills out of an old man's purse when he's bouncing off a passing fender. I am for an art out of a doggy's mouth falling five stories from the roof. I am for an art that ki kids lick after peeling away the wrapper. I am for an art that joggles like everyone's knees when the bus traverses an excavation. I am for an art that is smoked like a cigarette, smells like a pair of shoes. I am for an art that flaps like a flag or helps blow nose on a handkerchief. I am for art that is put on and taken off like pants, which develops holes like socks, which is eaten like a piece of pie, or abandoned with great contempt. I am for an art covered with bandages. I am for an art that limps and rolls and jumps. I am for an art that comes in a can or washes up on the shore. That's part of it. It's a pretty sweet manifesto. Klaus Oldenburg. So, he could have said, um, I'd really like that we could stop making art with just bronze sculptures and oil on canvas. It would be nice if it wasn't just men making art and if they weren't just always isolated in their studios. Um, it'd be nice if you didn't have to be a genius if just normal people could make art. He could have said those things, but that would have been like super boring, <laughs> right? Like it just is way cooler to say it in a manifesto and saying something that's dramatic, something that's meant to catch your attention, something that's to give you a sense and, it, and a manifesto can give you the feeling. It can give you the sense of, of it. It can kind of, of the words and what's between the words, what's said between the lines. And so I think that is how we need to hear the Beatitudes. It's like, here's, here's what reality is. See this, feel this. This is what it is like. Um, So, let's hear the Beatitudes again. Um, and the other thing about the Beatitudes is kind of interesting. The very first thing, it says, this version didn't say it, but there's other versions that says, um, and this is more accurate, um, is that he turned his gaze toward his disciples. So he says this in a crowd, but it's to his disciples. He's not just advertising kingdom to everybody. He's talking to a certain kind of people, and the gaze is like um, considered. He's like really seeing them. It's the same word that, you know, in Job of gaze of like, turn your gaze from me. It's really God's consideration of us. He's like, here's my disciples. Here's some words for you. Um, um, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, so the word for poor there is to crouch, to slink, to cringe. Um, it's to be thoroughly frightened, to cower or hide oneself. It's roving about in wretchedness. Roving about in wretchedness. Following Jesus is like roving about in wretchedness. <laughs> it's very dramatic. I love those words. They're pretty good, eh? Um, <clears throat> it is 
it sounds horrible. It's powerless. It's helpless. It's out of control. It's vulnerable. It's you're going to be taken advantage of. It's suffering. Um, doesn't sound like a good time, and it doesn't sound like a blessed state. But it's the biggest gift. You get the kingdom of God itself. The the poor are the people that God is gladly giving the kingdom to. Um, and the poor were the ones that the the religious leaders, the church keeps out. We we keep it out. We 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 distance ourselves from our own sense of poverty. We don't want to feel that. That doesn't feel like a blessed state. That doesn't sound like somewhere where I want to be. Do I want to be roving about in wretchedness? Do I want to be on my knees begging for God's forgiveness and God's presence to be with me and begging for his mercy? No, we don't want to feel like beggars. Um, um, but, and then the word for kingdom here is, um, this Greek word basilia, which I'm assuming is where basilica comes from. Um, but the kingdom here, this word doesn't refer to a place. It refers to the authority and the action, the actual ruling action. So when we are poor, the promise is that his, God's action is totally alive and moving in you. When we are poor, his action is totally alive and moving in us, for us. That, that makes more sense why that's blessed, right? That's a state. It's a, it's, it's a possession of the soul. Um, blessed are you who hunger and now, for you should be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. These are versions of poverty. Um, the weeping here means like wailing and sobbing, um, not like kind of quietly, dignifiedly, kind of crying in the corner quietly, not disturbing anybody. Um, and the hungering here is like aching void kind of hunger. And the filling, the word for fill there is actually gorged. Blessed are you hunger because you'll be gorged. You'll be like stuffed full. It'll be like after Christmas dinner full of God's presence. Um, and that weeping is that full comfort of the presence of the comforter. Um, and uh, I thought uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something interesting about mourning. He says, mourning disturbs the peace and makes us strangers in the world. And I thought, that's like so true. Like, Real weeping, like um, I remember when I was in Kenya, they uh, told one of the people I was at the YWAM base with, they had to go to a funeral for a friend. And the funeral involved everyone in the village came to this person's house and like wailed and threw spears like in and out of the house. And like they just threw themselves around, literally weeping and wailing for the loss of this person. And I just thought, wow, that is disturbing the peace. That is so not what we, I don't think we, that just doesn't seem polite in our culture. That just doesn't seem acceptable to have that level of weeping. And maybe we do that, like, maybe we have private moments like that. But, man, what would it be like if we all wept together? Um... Yeah, and uh, um, Rohr says that Jesus praises the weeping class because they, they enter into the solidarity with the world's pain and they don't try to extract themselves from it. That is why the rich man can't see the kingdom because the, kingdom man, the rich man spends his life trying to make tears unnecessary and then ultimately impossible. Um, and I think a lot of us have grown up, I, I mean, I didn't grow up in the church, but I certainly got this idea later that, like, Christians are filled with joy, right? A lot of, we've got a lot of rules. We've got a lot of rules, you know? Christians don't have sex before marriage. Christians don't swear. Christians don't drink. Christians, yeah, I mean, just so many rules. We've got so many rules. Um, just like that. So anyway, so we, I think we avoid our places of poverty. We I think we hate these places. I think we fear these places. I think we go to the great lengths to hide them from other people and ourselves. I think we fear that God's compassion won't be there. I think we fear that God's like, oh, are you still crying about that same thing? 
Um, you know, are you going around that same issue again? Like, what's your problem? Um, that's so not how God thinks. That's like how I think. But um, um, Oswald Chambers got this great quote. He says that our greatest spiritual blessing is the knowledge that we are destitute. And until we get there, our Lord is powerless. He can do nothing for us if we are sufficient of ourselves. I love self-sufficiency. I love independence. Um, you know, we praise the self-made man, the people who, you know, God helps those who help themselves. But those are like not kingdom values. They are not kingdom values. Being poor and weeping and wailing and standing with the poor and people who are aching and those are kingdom values. Um, he says that we enter the kingdom through the door of destitution. So, um, I guess poverty really is our reality. Um, and if we, it's a truth that can set us free to accept that. It's a truth that, like, there's just so much glad news that, that in our poor places, God gives us himself, his full action, his whole self. Like, I love that God gives us his whole self. He never holds parts back. Um, I mean, I don't think we can take it all in, but it's certainly all there for us. Um, and I think we reject our, our poor states too because I think um, we, we meaning make around it. Human beings really meaning make. And I think we think if we're poor, that means something about us. It means that we failed somehow. It means that we're losers, that you know, um, that we need to be standing in judgment about it ourselves. Um, and it, I think poverty also feels really opposite to wholeness. And I think Christians, we our culture really has pop psychology, has psychology, and psychology really has its role. I'm, and I've spent many hours in counseling. But the goal of psychology is often wholeness. It's the kind of our childhoods have sort of taken something from us, we're kind of screwed up, and we're kind of going for a sense of self-realization and wholeness. And I think it's like abundantly clear that in the Bible that we're not going to find wholeness. That's like an impossible goal. When they talk about setting realistic goals, it's an impossible goal. Um, poverty is a really <laughs> possible goal. <laughs> like really identifying with your own poverty is a really possible goal. So then receiving God's kingdom right here and now is... In your poverty, your place of poverty is totally something you can actually accomplish, like not accomplish, but can be, could be the state that we're in now. Um, um, Thomas Merton says, I am coming to think that God loves and helps best those who are so beat and have so much nothing when they come to die that it is almost as if they had persevered in nothing but had gradually lost everything. Everything until there was nothing but God. I'm just going to read that again. I'm coming to think that God loves and helps best those who are so beat and have so much nothing when they come to die that it is almost as if they had persevered in nothing but gradually lost everything until there was nothing but God. Yeah. Um... And then just the very last one, the blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Um, I think just in case we're tempted to think of the Beatitudes as symbolic, I think that one really hits us over the head. It's like, no, no, King kingdom's really real. Jesus is really real. If you really live like Jesus, people will hate you. Period expect it. I mean, I don't know how much wailing I've done about bad things happening to me, and it's just like, what am I thinking? Of course bad things are going to happen to me. Why am I thinking that bad things are not going to happen to me? Why am I so offended and hurt and angry at God that bad things are happening to me? Um, but we really think, I kind of think like Job's friends, that if you're following God, bad things don't happen to you. Jesus is like, no, no, if you're following me, people want to kill you. Regularly want to kill you. That's how distasteful you are. Um, 
But I was like, yeah, thinking, I don't know that my faith looks like that. I don't know if my faith totally looks like that or not. Um, but this, this blessed, this blessed really illustrates that it's not symbolic, that the kingdom is really real, that really living kingdom is really real, and that life isn't about us. I'm not my own. My life's not for me. My life isn't for a pursuit of happiness or for filling my bucket lists. My life is meant to be in the kingdom with other people in the kingdom. Um, and this blessed also really shows us that the spiritual manifests itself in the physical, just like physical manifests itself in the spiritual. Um, it also really shows us our need. It shows us that we need Jesus' eyes to see reality in the kingdom. We need to be able to see that, like, if we're getting persecuted, this is like a good sign. It's like, woohoo, rejoice, let's party. This is a good time, great joy. He says, leap for joy. People hate you, they think you're evil. Leap for joy. <laughs> we really need Jesus' eyes to see that reality. We really need his eyes to see the kingdom. Um, and we really need it like a revelation, like a gift. Um, just like Peter was able to say, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus, that's, you've been revealed that. You haven't figured that out. That's been revealed to you. We need the kingdom given to us as a revelation. Our greatest fortune for when we are stripped of the riches that were not ours and could not possibly endow us with anything but trouble. Then we become aware of the whole meaning of our life is poverty and emptiness, which far from defeat are really the pledge of all the great supernatural gifts. The meaning of our life is poverty and emptiness, which far from defeat are really the pledge of all the great supernatural gifts. Can you embrace your poverty? Can I embrace my poverty? Can I let go of being rich? I really love feeling like I know stuff and, and I really want people's good opinions and I really want to sometimes just jump hoops and do lectios and pray and not have to try to have a relationship with God whose gaze is sometimes like, turn it from me. It's so, it's so piercing. But, um, yeah, um, Poverty is really our real home. It's our real place. It's the gateway to the kingdom. Yeah, I just feel like the, the Lord just wants us to, to stop there. And just where is there those, where are those places of desperation? Where do you feel disqualified, marginalized, that you've fallen short, that you failed, that you, you don't measure up? that somehow God has rejected you, those are the places where the basilia comes, the reign of God. That's where he wants to come. And I'm thinking of Don Sixtrom's wonderful story. He, he sat here in his, with his walker for many years, and we just blessed him to, to go to the island. He would shoot cocaine straight into his veins, injection cocaine user. And he would come to church, worship, and go home and shoot more cocaine. And he did that for I don't know how long, but he just kept coming. He didn't let that seeming marginalization and disqualification stop him from coming into the presence of God. And one day he heard it, and I think it was an audible voice as he was had come home from worship in a vineyard church and he was shooting that cocaine in his arm and he heard these words, Don, how does it feel to be free from cocaine addiction? And when he heard those words, he laughed. He thought he was being mocked and he looked around and there was no one there. And he said from that moment, he never had one more craving. He was completely free. The reality of the, ki the kingdom of God is here. Thank you, Sandra. What a beautiful offering and gift to us today. So can you just stop and just hold that? Just hold. Where is that in your life today?
may not be as dramatic as cocaine addiction, but where is it for you today? And I say, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. How does it feel to be free from fill in that blank? In Jesus' name. Let's all stand together. So I want to bless you with Paul's exhortation to the Galatians to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. I bless you to walk in the freedom of the sons and daughters of God in wholeness and holiness and righteousness that comes from the heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. If you want prayer, we're willing to pray for you at the front, or feel free to turn to somebody. If some of those areas touched in your heart, God bless you.